Amen. No song preparation, correct? All right. Well, let's join together now in taking our copy of God's Word, which we believe is without any error, and is truthful in all it teaches, and we will turn together to our passage for this morning, which is in Acts 5, 17 through 42. So Acts 5, 17 through 42. So we are well into Luke's narrative on the church, on the birth and growth of the early church. If you remember from way back in the beginning, we saw that he originally wrote this to Theophilus. Theophilus was a Gentile who had received some Christian instruction, made an acquaintance, a friendship with Luke, becomes Luke's patron, his benefactor, and this enables Luke to, to make a living while doing research and writing his two books. If you read through the Gospel of Luke and, and, and the book of Acts, it's obvious that Luke, who was not an original disciple, went and, and interviewed these people. He interviewed Mary, and, and, and he interviewed the other disciples to, to put together the story. And we, we see that here in the book of Acts. And so, as we saw last week, we talked about, there's an ebb and flow to Luke's narrative. This isn't just a, a, a collection of historical facts that he just throws on the page. He's telling a story. He's telling the story of the, the birth and the growth of the early church. And Luke's a good storyteller. He's a good storyteller because he's been divinely led and inspired to tell a story. And he has the greatest story to tell. It's the story of Christ and of his church. We see this ebb and flow of good storytelling and how he structures this book. Such as last week, we were able to bask in the wonder of God's works in and through his people. God was doing wonders and signs in and through his people. And they were doing this in gospel ministry. And as we saw, when, when God's people <clears throat> excuse me, are engaged in gospel ministry, faithful gospel ministry, two things will happen. It will repel. It will push people away. It will push away uh, wolves in sheep clothing. It will push away those who don't want to be committed to Christ. It will push away those who just don't want to be all the way there for Jesus. So the gospel will repel. But the gospel will always draw in God's sheep. The gospel will always draw in those who long for Jesus, who long to be in the glory of his grace and truth. So we got to bask in that last week. In the ebb and flow of this story, we come to our passage this morning, and we are reintroduced to the villains of the story, the bad guys of the gospel, that's the religious leaders of Jerusalem. As we prepare to read this passage, we'll see that they are continuing to try and suppress the gospel ministry of the early church. The gospel has repelled them. And we're going to see, begin to see how far uh, this Repelling and this hatred of the gospel goes for these supposed religious leaders in Jerusalem. We'll see that, of course, in our passage in Acts 5 this morning. Let me pray for us as we prepare to come before God's word together. Lord, we, we come to you now and we pray um, that we will be drawn to the gospel. If there are any hard hearts here this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would break them. Through the work of your spirits, make everyone in here, everyone who's joining us online, receptive to your word. That we may hear the glories of Christ and the glories of you in Christ. That we may be convicted of our sins, convicted to repent, 
and convicted to walk in the ways you have called us to walk. Lord, bless us in the ministry of this word for your glory. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 5, 17 through 42. Since this is a, a longer passage, we will stay seated for the reading of God's word. But I encourage you to read along with me now. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go, go and stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of his life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and are teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up, gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before he says, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone. For, it, it, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Ye might even be found opposing God. So he took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for, him, for the name. And every day, the temple from house to house that did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Flowers, the grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. The religious leaders of Jerusalem, Pharisees and Sadducees and those associated with them 
are like that proverbial bad penny that always turns up. Just when you think they're gone, boom, they show right back up again. As we read through the Gospels and in the book of Acts, these guys keep showing up like that proverbial bad penny, but they show up with the purpose of causing trouble and with the goal of shutting down Jesus and his followers in their ministry. They have one purpose. They have one goal, and they're consistent with it. They're the villains. In the story of good versus evil, they are the villains. They are the bad guys of the gospel. And we find that here they are, back at it again. And we've already been introduced to them by Luke earlier in the narrative when he talks about Peter and John going to the temple for prayer. And there's a, a, a lame beggar there who's been lame for 40 years. He asked for money. And do you remember what the response was? We do not have silver or gold to give to you, but we have something better. You can be healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that lame man believed. And after 40 years, he's able to stand up, walk around, and, and, and jump around. The religious leaders didn't like that. They didn't like what Peter and John did. They especially didn't like that Peter and John were telling people about Jesus and the resurrection. So they go and arrest him, lock him up for a night, and then sternly demand, they point a finger and said, and demand that they no longer preach about Jesus Christ. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those associated with them would act like this. That they act like this about the followers of Jesus and their ministry. Because remember how Jesus described them in John chapter 8. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And all the Pharisees and Sadducees and those associated with them have done since that point, have proven that Jesus is right about them. Have they murdered? Yes. To put Jesus on the cross. Have they lied? Yes. They've lied about Jesus and what he said and what he was teaching. They are just like their father, Satan. Now we can juxtapose that to God as our father. And what character do we learn from God as our father? We learn he's the God of grace and the God of truth. The one who is grace and the one who is truth. Therefore, he's the God who will never lie. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who's commanded his people to love what is good, to pursue what is noble, and to never lie. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those associated with them are taking the stand against the followers of Jesus because at the end of the day, they don't like the light of God's truth because they're just like their father, Satan. They're just like cockroaches. When you enter into a dark room and you turn the light, what do cockroaches do? They scatter. They scatter because they do not like the light. And they want to get away from it. And that's what the religious leaders are like in the book of Acts. They hate the light of God's truth. So they seek to avoid it and they seek to snuff it out. And the thing is, that same spirit lives on in this day and age. And we no longer have the Pharisees and Sadducees to contend with, but Satan is still at work. Peter tells us that he is 
prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour those who live in the light of God's glory, grace, and truth. And Satan is still using human agents to try and suppress the gospel ministry in the faithful churches of Jesus Christ. Because their father, these human agents, their father is Satan. And they're just merely doing his bidding. That same spirit at work here in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, is still at work in this day and age. And we're seeing it encroaching more and more upon churches who are faithful to Jesus Christ. So this is not an antiquated story about our far-off ancestors, what happened to them. No, this is a story that bears relevance to us. Satan still hates God. Satan still hates the gospel. Satan still hates the disciples of Jesus and the faithful ministry of the gospel. And he's still sending people after God's people and the church to shut down the ministry. Just as we see happening in our passage this week. Word of the signs and wonders that were being done in the early church has reached the religious leaders and they don't like what they hear. Matter of fact, Luke tells us that the high priests and the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They, they, were, they were eaten up with it. They were eaten up with jealousy because there was growing popular admiration and influence for this Christian community and the apostles and it was taking it away from them. They, they, these religious leaders, these, these who, who, who were schooled in the Old Testament, who should have known better, but they were jealous, not for God's honor, not for the advancement of his kingdom. They were jealous for their own influence and power. And here are these group of Christians ruining it for them. So the high priest Caiaphas, who is the same one who presided at the trial of Jesus, serves as the president of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. This Caiaphas hears more and more about this, and he's tired of it. He gives the orders. Go, gather them up, arrest them, and put them away. This is a pattern that the religious leaders of Jerusalem dealt the gospel ministry by trying to shut it away. They don't engage. They don't try to interact. They're bullies. They're going to try to shut it away. They're jealous. So they're going to deal with it by getting those Christians out of sight and out of mind. But we see God had other plans. Look at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. You begin to notice that these bad guys like to operate at night. Because what does nighttime do? Gives them cover. Gives them an excuse. They rest. Them. It's nighttime. It's dark. Maybe it's in the moonlight is able to, to filter its way into the prison. But there we find the apostles sitting in jail cells. And the miraculous happens. An angel of the Lord appears without a key. He opens up all the prison doors of the cells where the apostles are, and they're now free. But why? What reason? Why did this happen? So the apostles could go out 
and collectively write a best-selling book about their experience? To go on tour of churches to tell others about their experience? To post it all over social media? To take selfies with the hashtag of, of set free and ain't God good? No. It's none of that. As the creaking of the prison door still reverberates in the air, the angel gathers them from together and he says this one, he has this one message for them. Go. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I'm breaking you out so you can continue to do this gospel ministry. That's God's plan for y'all. When we come to passages like this, I, I, I think it's tempting, and I think it's easy to get stuck on the angel. Because it's a miraculous, right? What, what did he look like? What was his voice like? Does God, still see, does God still send angels? Have I ever seen an angel? What would I do if an angel shows up? We can, t- can t- tend to get stuck on the angel aspect, but that's not meant to be the focus. Because we see time and time again in Scripture... When an angel of the Lord shows up, he directs attention and glory from himself and onto the only one worthy, and that's God. So the focus here isn't on the angel. The focus here is how serious God is about the gospel ministry of his church. Could God have waited to the morning and let them go free and, and, and maybe we'll continue in the ministry? No. He does something miraculous because he is serious about the gospel ministry of his church. So seriously, he sends an angel during the night to miraculously release his disciples and then directs them to continue in the ministry, to continue to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. More so, we'll talk about this in a minute, to go back to the scene of the crime, to go back where they were arrested and continue to do what they were doing. Because God is serious about the ministry of his church. So serious that he sends an angel to break his disciples out for them to go on and continue to do the ministry. And I think that's an important saying fact because we find that the church is becoming less and less serious. We can look at, at, at the world around us and we see the church is becoming less and less serious. Just randomly come across my, my, my Instagram feed the other day of, of a church who... Uh, Recited the creed, not the Apostles' Creed, not Nicene Creed, the Sparkle, the Sparkle Creed. To the non binary God, Mother, Mother, and Mother of the two fathers of Jesus Christ. Pastor standing in a row from a sacramental table doing the Sparkle Creed. We have other churches where the pastor dresses up as a clown and they have circus for worship. The church has started to get very unserious. And we see what happens when churches stray from obedience to God's word it leads them to not being serious about being the kind of church God has called them to be. And they end up reciting the Sparkle Creed while dressed up as clowns. God is always serious about his church. 
He's serious about them being who they have been called and redeemed to be. He is serious about his people loving him with all this heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's serious about them loving their neighbors as themselves. He is serious about their worship of him. God is serious about his church, which means God is serious about this church. He is serious about Bethel. He is serious about you and me being who we have been called and redeemed to be. Serious about each of us loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. He is serious about our worship of him. God is serious about his church. So should we. And we see that with the apostles. Because they immediately obey God. Angel breaks them out. It's not, it doesn't, there's not a back and forth conversation. There isn't a banter. The angel says, go. They salute. And off they go to the temple. To continue the gospel ministry that God has called them to do and enabled them to do. As soon as possible, they get back at it again. So as they made their way to the temple to get back at it again, the high priest comes to the temple early in the morning. He's wearing his priestly robes. He's attended by, by his other members of his posse and crew around him. The other members of Sanhedrin are, are then called together. They find their seats in the hall of unhewn stone, this traditional meeting place of the Supreme Court of Israel. And they get together. Coffee is served. Pastries are laid out. And the high priest gives the orders. Go and bring forth the prisoners. So while they wait, they enjoy their coffee, sugar, cream, eat their pastries. A little bit of time goes by. A little bit longer it probably should have been. And the officers of the temple, or one of the officers comes back and he reports, Sirs, we found the prison house. It's, it's locked up quite securely. The guards are standing at the doors. But we have a problem. Because when we open the doors, there's no disciples. There's no prisoners. Of course, it doesn't make sense to anyone, does it? The guards are there. It's all locked up. Everything's in order, but the prisoners are gone. They're perplexed. They can't, they can't figure this out. And as they're trying to figure it out, somebody comes in and says, Guys, i got something to tell you. It's hard to believe, but, but those prisoners, the guys you locked up, we, we found them. God, oh, great. Where'd you find them? They're back at the temple. And they're, they're teaching again. And a crowd of people have gathered. The religious leaders are cowards. Because they send the officers back, but they say, don't, don't make a big deal out of it. We don't want to make the crowds upset. Officers go and bring them back to the court, stand before them. As soon as Caiaphas and Sanhedrin have Peter and John, the rest of the apostles, in front of them, they immediately get under, under high horse. And listen again to what they say. We strictly charge you to not teach his name. Yet, here you are. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We can imagine them sitting on their benches above the apostles. And we can imagine them looking down their noses at the apostles. And we can hear the high-browed smugness in their voices. How dare you peons 
How dare you bunch of nobodies not listen to what we, your religious leaders, what we told you to do. It's authoritative bullying is what's taking place here. And I think this helps us appreciate Peter's response more. He says simply, we must obey God rather than men. Simple, isn't it? So simple, so precise, so profound. Standing in front of the most powerful religious men in all the land, Peter looks him in the eye and says, we must obey God rather than you. That's exactly what Peter and the early church have been doing, isn't it? They've been obeying God. That's what they've been doing is what they are doing in this passage. It's what they will continue to do because for them, God is first. God is most. And God is priority. So even when you have the higher up saying, stop, or you will suffer the consequences, they say, we must obey God rather than you. As we have seen and we will continue to see, God honors that sort of obedience. God blesses that sort of obedience. The church grows because of that obedience. And God has redeemed us to that sort of obedience. I want us to think about what would our lives be like if that was our constant motto. I must obey God rather than man. I don't care what other people say. I don't care what other people do. I don't care what the world defines me or define how the world defines me. I don't care about peer pressure. What I care about most is I must obey God rather than man. Think about how that would shape how we live. Think about what that would do to our marriages. Think about what that would do to how we raise our children. When, when we say and believe God is first, God is most, God's priority, therefore we must obey God rather than men, that will change everything, wouldn't it? That would change everything in our lives. Doesn't matter what our neighbors think, say, or do. Doesn't matter about what the world says about us. What matters most is what the one who lived and died and bled and was resurrected for me is what he thinks that is most to me. Now think about if more and more Christians did that very thing. We probably wouldn't have churches that recite the Sparkle Creed. We probably wouldn't have churches that are treating it like a circus. We must obey God rather than men. And we see that early church do that very thing by continuing to look at the religious authorities and sharing the gospel with these men. And it says they became enraged. They were consumed by anger. The religious leaders said they want to get down off of their seats and their benches. They want to come down and just throttle those guys right there in front of everybody else. But then a voice speaks up. Gamaliel. He's Paul's teacher. He's one of the most famous rabbis of his time. He comes from a distinguished family line of rabbis. He was the sort of man that when he spoke, others listened. And that's what happened here. He says, 
disperse disciples, take them away. And he looks around the, he looks around the Sanhedrin and he says, we need to be careful. Cooler heads need to prevail. We need to think through what we are saying, what we are doing. And he takes them through two re- recent instances. There's a man named, named, named Thudius and the other Judas the Galilean. And, and the moral of these stories is that these were religious movements, but they are ultimately from God. I'm sorry, they are ultimately from man, not from God. And therefore, they were doomed to failure from the start. So uh, Gamaliel uh, summarized his caution with this very profound statement. So in the present case, I, I tell y'all, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's a very wise thing for a man to say who is so far away from God. It's like Balaam's donkey, isn't it? But he's able to look around and say, if if it is of God, you, you and me, we will not be able to overthrow it. Matter of fact, we might even be found opposing God. Here's the thing. You and I have the blessed perspective of knowing that what he was talking about, the early church, it is of God. It's is blessed by God. It will continue to flourish and blossom and succeed for the glory of God. We can see somewhat the irony of that statement. Just like Pilate looking at Jesus and saying, what is truth? There's great irony in that because Jesus Christ is the one who is truth. And Leo, this is of God. We better not oppose it. We also have the blessing and understanding the blessing of understanding that we can apply this bit of wisdom to our own lives and ministries. One, one of the sayings I get tired of hearing nowadays is you want to make sure you're on the right side of history. It's a very manipulative thing because you can say that about anything, right? But we want to make sure we're always found on the right side of the gospel. That's not manipulative. That's scriptural. We don't want to oppose God. We don't want to be set against the gospel ministry he has set forth. We want to be of God. How do we be of God? How do we know we are of God? Well, it starts with faith. To receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation has been offered in the gospels. Not what I have done. Not my family line. Not how long my family has been sitting in this pew but I have personally received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's been offered in the gospel. That makes you of God. Because God makes you his own. And the sign that you are of God is word, prayer, and sacraments. How do we know we are of God? By constantly being his word. So that it is his truth that becomes our lens to see everything. Everything in our world around us is a fight about truth, isn't it? What is truth? To constantly be in God's word so that it is his truth that becomes our lens to see everything. To constantly be in prayer so that it is his will and wisdom we are constantly seeking. It is his promises that we are living in. To faithfully be in the sacraments so we are strengthened and grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is how we be of God. Faith, word, prayer, and sacrament. 
And Luke details what happens to the apostles for being of God. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The council listens to Gamaliel and then they beat him. 39 lashes each of them. Two on the back, one on the chest. And Luke tells us that on that morning, the temple doors open. The apostles walk out, still bleeding, on their chests and on their backs under 39 lashes. And they rejoiced. Blood stained their robes and tunics. They joyfully sang the songs. Bending over from the pain of all they received, they joyfully lifted their voices together in prayerful joy that they could suffer for the sake of Christ. And they got back at it again. They obeyed God rather than men. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They were consumed by Jesus. Just as the religious leaders were consumed by their anger and hatred of the gospel, the apostles were consumed by the love and glory of Christ and by the gospel. It was more important to them than anything else, even their own comfort and well-being. And here's the thing. When we are consumed by Christ, and we are of God, and we know we must obey God rather than man, we are not promised an easy life in and for Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, we are told to be the opposite. We find it here. Jesus tells us from his own lips, the world will hate you because it first hated me. When we choose to obey God rather than man, it will make life difficult. It may make life difficult at your job. Not because necessarily you're out proselytizing, but because you take the stand for Jesus. It might make things difficult in your marriage. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It may make things difficult raising your children. They may be a little bit different from the kids around them because the kids around them love the world more than they love Jesus, but you are going to raise your child in Christ. When God is first, when God is most, when God is priority, when we obey God instead of man, it will get difficult. But in that difficulty... Is joy. Because the, the blessings of obedience will far outweigh the difficulties of this world. The, the, the blessing of that joy of, of, of being in the Lord and in His way, the grace of walking as one of His, the mercy of His love shining forth in your life, that joy of knowing Jesus because He first knew you is all worth it. It's always worth it. The apostles, bleeding from 39 lashes on their backs and chests, found it all worthy. And they rejoiced. And they went out and continued in the gospel ministry. And may we understand, like the apostles, so consumed by Jesus, that Christ and this gospel is always worth it. 
and that we will always choose to obey God rather than man and walk with him in his path and ways because Jesus is always worth it. Let's pray together.